This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. Habsburg Curiosity. We have a really important and interesting job today, which is to get through the Habsburg family. So families matter a lot in history. Larger forces matter too, structural forces matter too, climate matters, geology matters, economics matter, but individuals and families matter very much as well. This would be a very different war if someone besides Volodymyr Zelensky were president of Ukraine. This would be a very different war if someone besides Joe Biden were president of the United States. Individuals do matter, families do matter, and it's important to have them inside history as well. It's an especially easy case to make for the Habsburgs because they were in power for, in some form or other for about 600 years, one place or another, and for some times they were in power over much of the world. So the, the, um, the historian A.J.P. Taylor wrote that for about half a millennium, it, it wasn't that the Habsburgs turned around the history of Europe, it was that the history of Europe turned around them. And for about 100 years, you could even say as much about the history of the world. So if you are going to be a, a history major, or if you're going to be a, someone especially who's focusing on the history of Europe, and there's one family name that you should know, um, this is probably the family name that you should know. So we are going to get around to why the Habsburgs are so important to the history of Ukraine, but, but we're going to make sure first, and this is going to be the bulk of the lecture, that we have a sense of who the Habsburgs are. So if the Habsburgs were so important, why is it that no one talks that much about them? Or more interestingly, why is it that of all the peoples around the world, um, the, the, the people who remember the Habsburgs fondly tend to be in Western Ukraine? So the, Habsburg touch, the Habsburgs touch all kinds of people, um, including the Aztecs, uh, including the Inca, they touched all kinds of people, but the, they're remembered fondly in Western Ukraine. And by the end of the lecture, you should have a sense of why it is that they're remembered fondly in Western Ukraine. In terms of the overall arguments and method that we've been using in this class, this is going to be one more example of how friction or contact between larger powers, between empires, has to do with the creation of the nation. The Habsburgs are going to turn out to be very important <clears throat> in the origins of Ukraine. And yet, and yet, and yet, when the Habsburgs, when, when Maria Theresia uh, takes part in the first partition of Poland in 1772 and brings in a tiny bit of territory where most people speak Ukrainian, she is thinking many things, but she is certainly not thinking about Ukraine or the history of Ukraine or the future of Ukraine. Nevertheless, this little encounter, one tiny part of where Ukrainian is spoken in the world, and also one tiny part of the Habsburg monarchy, that overlap between one tiny part of the zone where Ukrainian is spoken and one tiny part of the Habsburg world, that little tiny overlap, which is called Galicia, is going to turn out to be very, very important in, in, for the, the history of the Ukrainian nation. Um, it's going to be important for um, for a, a, a certain kind of a certain a special certain kind of moment. I'm going to say the 1880s to the 1980s. For about a century, Galicia is going to be the most important part of of, of what's now Ukraine. That period comes and that period goes. If you it's it's already gone. So. Um, with all due respect to those of you who are from Halichina, um, that period has now passed. The, the, the center, the, the natural center of European politics, uh, sorry, of, of Ukrainian politics is actually the East. 
Um, it's the east now. Um, and it, it's the east for most of the time that we're teaching in this class. But for a century or so, Galicia is extremely important. And you might even argue necessary, right? So you can, imagine, you can imagine there might be an essay question, which would be something like, if Galicia had not been part of the Habsburg monarchy, what would have happened to Ukraine, right? That's, that's how important this zone is. So we're talking about a moment. We're talking about a moment when some Ukrainian-speaking territory is part of the Habsburg monarchy. That moment lasts from 1772 to 1918. And then we're talking about a moment where that zone, we, we will be later talking about a moment where that zone is crucial to Ukraine as a whole, which is roughly the 1880s to the 1890s. Okay, so, but my goal here is to make sure you know who the Habsburgs are. Because if you walked away from this class saying the Habsburgs, I mean, with all due respect to the history of Ukraine, if you walked away from this class thinking the Habsburgs are important because of this thing they did in Galicia for a few decades, that would be an unfortunately nationalistic interpretation of this family. So we're going to make sure that we know who the Habsburgs are. We have talked about a couple of kinds of empires so far. We've talked about empires that break out into the age of discovery and empires that don't. So when we think about the success of the Russian Empire in the 18th century, one of the broad factors behind that was that Russia managed to reach the Pacific. And also that Russia, by way of English traders first, manages to trade west as well into the Atlantic. Russia breaks out into the world, not just on land, but also by making contact with the oceans. A couple of other empires or large states um, that don't do that are the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which comes to an end in the 18th century, um, and the Ottoman Empire, which is, which is weakening. The Ottoman Empire can't break out of the Mediterranean. The Habsburgs are a very interesting kind of middle case because the Habsburgs do break out into the wider world. Indeed, they break out into the wider world more effectively and more extravagantly and more spectacularly than any other family. In the early 16th century, um, they, are governing, they are governing Spain. By the late 18th century, sorry, 16th century, they're also governing Portugal. Um, they're governing the Netherlands uh, for, much, for the much of the 1500s and the 1600s. Why does that matter? Because the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the Dutch are the major exploring powers at the time. If you just, if you cast a, a glance at the bottom part of the map that I handed out, you get it, you get it, which is entitled Habsburg Earth. That gives you an idea. Um, we think of these things as Spanish history, the Spanish Empire, Portuguese history, the Portuguese Empire. We think, we think, of, we think of the Dutch traders, uh, but the Habsburgs actually ruled these countries in the 1500s and, and the 1600s. So the Habsburgs ruled domains which break out into the world um, more powerfully, more spectacularly than any other single family, but then it's all broken. In 1700, the, the, the Spanish branch of the Habsburgs dies out, and the Habsburgs at that point are basically reduced to being a European power. That year, 1700, one year after 1699, which as you all know, is um, the time of the Treaty of Karlovitz, which marks when the Habsburgs break out into Southeastern Europe. So 1699-1700, you can remember as a kind of turning point when the Habsburgs are ceasing to be a world power, but at exactly the same moment, becoming a Southeastern, East Central, or East European power. The final thing I wanna say about the Habsburgs before I get into the chronology is that 
I would ask you, if you have a vision of the Habsburgs in mind, maybe you don't, maybe this is all completely new, but if you have a vision of the Habsburgs in mind and you come from a Francophone or an Anglophone background, the vision that you have in your mind is probably very much people who were you know, mad, bad, and unfit to rule. Um, you, you, you probably have in mind the idea that this was some kind of antique, um, cantankerous, you know, doomed, doomed monarchy, which was anachronistic because it had lots of nations inside of it at the same time and fell apart during the First World War. That's the stereotype. And that stereotype comes from American and British and French propaganda during the First World War. So if you come from, if you happen to come from those traditions, a French or a British or American tradition in education, probably insofar as the Habsburgs figure at all, it's as a prison of nations, yada, yada, yada. Um, I mean, just, you know, I'm gonna puncture that just for a moment. Uh, just one moment. The, when, when the Habsburgs were fighting the Americans in, uh, in, at the end of the First World War, um, when, when Wilson gave his famous speech um, in which he was announcing the principle of self-determination, there were, there were, okay, I'm gonna put this as a question because you guys look awake. There were how many African-Americans in the American Congress listening to that speech? Come on, you can do it. It's the safest possible guess. Zero is correct, right? Zero is correct. Um, whereas in the Habsburg parliament at the same time, all of the nationalities were represented, right? All the nationalities were represented. So in many ways, the Habsburg monarchy was actually a more liberal country than the United States of America at the time when they were waging war. I, that's just one little detail. And when you think about the Habsburgs today, and you think about that stereotype, think about, you could also think about it in, this, in these terms. Were the Habsburgs you know, behind, behind the times, or insofar as these ways of thinking about things are, are, are acceptable, were, maybe they were ahead of their time? Because by the time you get to the 19th century, the late 19th century, the early 20th century, the Habsburgs were a multinational, pluralistic, liberal zone with very messy politics, but, but a growing economy, um, and not entirely unlike the European Union of today. Right, so is that model of being multinational and having cranky politics based on compromise among nationalities, is that a thing of the past or is that maybe a thing of the present or the future? Okay, so so much for the repair of the image of the Habsburgs. Um, now we're gonna zoom back into the history of the Habsburgs and, uh, and you can make your own judgments. So the Habsburgs go all the way back. Um, they really are an old family. They're not as old as they say they are. They don't actually go back to Ramos and Remulus and the, you know, and the, and the wolf. Um, but, they, but they do go back to the year 1020. They, they built a castle called the Habichtsburg, um, which is the first sign of their existence, and that's the year 1020. So basically their existence is contemporaneous with the foundation of Kievan Rus, as we know it, which is 988. The Habsburgs have been around for a long time. Most of this history isn't gonna to seem to have much to do with Ukraine, but we need to know who they are before they get to Ukraine. The, the, the most, um, these people make their money by um, not, not from glamorous conquest, and this is sort of a theme. They make their money at the beginning by tolls over bridges and by taxing travelers and, and things like that in what's now Austria, what's now, what's now Switzerland. The, 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 one, um, the one great or the greatest Austrian Habsburg warlord was Rudolf von Habsburg, who was born in 1218 and is elected Holy Roman Emperor in 1273. He's the founder of this dynasty as a major European dynasty. What's the Holy Roman Empire? Um, the Holy Roman Empire is, the, so the title of Holy Roman Emperor is given to the King of the Franks, 
If you'll remember, the, the, our, you know, we, the initial geopolitics of this class are the Franks in the West and the Byzantines in the South or, or in the East. Charlemagne is the great king of the Franks. Um, the idea that there is an emperor is revived in the West with the kingdom of the Franks. And then when that line dies out, it's restored again in the year 962 when Otto, who is king of Germany, is named Holy Roman Emperor crowned Holy Roman Emperor in, nine, in 962. From that point forward, um, until Napoleon does away with it, there's going to be something called the Holy Roman Empire. And the Habsburgs are going to claim superiority over other families, largely by being Holy Roman Emperors, and by claiming that they always should be Holy Roman Emperors. But the interesting, many interesting things about the Holy Roman Empire, but one of them is that the emperor was elected, admittedly by a very small group of electors, a handful of electors, but nevertheless elected. The way elections work, though, is, um, is that they're, they're very closely associated with, with bouts of violence, which is, of course, something we in America don't know anything about. Um, the, uh, the, when Rudolf of Habsburg was elected Holy Roman Emperor in 1273, and this was immediately contested by probably the most impressive king of the most impressive kingdom of the time, which was the wonderfully named um, Odokar Przemysl II, right? Like the name Odokar Przemysl was so good that there had to be at least two of them, right? So, so Odokar Przemysl II, who was king of the Czechs, really, he really was the, probably the most impressive ruler of Europe at the time. Um, uh, the, the Czechs have just done this funny thing where they've claimed that they've hosted, did you see this? They've claimed that they've hosted a referendum in Kaliningrad. Yeah, that goes, yeah, Kudelevitz, yeah, sorry, Kudelevitz. Um, th this goes back to Autokarp Shemisul II and the great Czech, the great, the great Czech kingdom of, of the Middle Ages. So, um, so he immediately contests this and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a huge war um, in, which, in which Rudolf of Habsburg actually wins and Autokarp Shemisul II is killed, which is one of these turning points, right? I mean, by, this, isn't, this class is not about this, but by rights, you could say, the Czechs probably should have been the dominant power in Eastern Europe, and they just had some bad luck at a couple at a couple of at a couple of moments, and this was one of them. After Rudolf dies in 1291, um, his son is not elected, so his son then contests the election. That seems like a strangely euphemistic way of putting it. It makes it seem like I'm holding up a ballot or something and say you didn't count this one, but that's not that's not what I mean by contest the election. I mean that. He killed, he killed the man who was elected on the battlefield with his own hands, spearing him through the face and finishing, finishing him off with a much feared Bollock knife, um, which is exactly what it sounds like, after which he was elected, right? After which he was elected. Um, so you can see the history of elections, like the, in the history of elections, there's a lot of disentanglement to do between like the peaceful procedure and the violence that attends elections. And it's a, that's a lot of, it's a lot of hard work. Um, the, the, run, the, run of the, the run of the Habsburgs ends um, in a meaningful way in 1346 when another great Czech king, the greatest Czech king, Charles, the one after whom the university and the bridge, if you've ever been there, is named. Um, king Charles uh, is elected Holy Roman Emperor in, 13, in 1346. Um, this, is, uh, this is very important for the history of the, the Czechs and the history of Central Europe, but for our purposes, we just want to note that the, ha the, the Luxembourgs, that's Charles' that's Charles's family, yes, the same as the country, the Luxembourgs now become Holy Roman emperors for a while. 
And this is a big problem for the Habsburgs, not least because the Luxembourgs do an extremely good job of it. Um, Charles promulgates something called the Golden Bull in 1346, which is a statute of imperial governance, which straightened things out, which includes electoral procedures. I want to say that it says no bollock knife, but it doesn't actually say that. Um, that would be too good to be true. But it includes electoral procedures so the transitions could be a little bit easier in the future. The Habsburgs respond to this in a way which is poetic and characteristic, and which I want you to mark because it is a feature of this family, as you'll know if you've read The Red Prince. Um, they, they, they respond to this with a beautiful, kind of a, a beautiful nostalgic attack. They invent something called the Privilegium Maius. They just make it up. They just make it up, um, which is not an unknown theme in East European history, by the way. People just making up documents. Um, there's, there's, kind of, there's a lot of this later on, um, which is good fun for historians. So they just make up something called the Privilegium Maius in 1359. And the idea is that the Habsburgs are the oldest family, and the Habsburgs have the right to rule Rome, etc., because they, they have land grants from Nero and land grants from Julius Caesar. Okay, that is not true at all. It's just completely made up, but it's a nice story. Right? It's a nice story. And if you have a nice story and you have power, then sometimes you can make your nice story seem like it's true. Um, so uh, so the, the Luxembourgs are going to be ruling as Holy Roman emperors until 1437, at which point a crisis and a marriage are going to flip the Holy Roman Empire back to, back to the Habsburgs. Um, the crisis, which we've run across before, is the Black Plague which begins in 1347 in Europe, wipes out maybe one third of the population. This, this crisis, this, uh, the pestilence, this crisis of disease is associated with a spiritual crisis. This is the time, if you've ever had like a survey European class, you'll remember there was one Pope, then there were two Popes, then there were three Popes, and the Popes were in various places, and they were hostage to kings and so on. This is that period, 13, in, the, in the 14th century, multiple Popes. As the, as the Black Death had died down, um, a council was called in Constance for 1414 to 1415. And the purpose of the council in Constance was to make order in the Christian church, to make order in, what, in, in, in the Catholic church. And one of the ways that order was to be made were that these annoying heretics from Bohemia were going to be brought in. And the, the, the most annoying of these heretics from Bohemia was a fellow called Jan Hus. So Jan Hus, um, J-A-N-H-U-S, I think he's on the sheet. He was a sort of, I mean, this is an anachronistic way of putting it, but he was a kind of pre-Protestant. He had many, of this, many ideas which would be familiar from radical Protestantism, like that you can preach in the language of the people, you can preach in the vernacular, you should preach facing the people. Um, he, he also had the idea that, the, this is a really radical idea, the church is not an institution as such, the church comes from the people, right? Therefore, the, all the property of the church is kind of up in question. The church shouldn't be wealthy, the wealth of the church should be returned to the people. These kinds of ideas, that's just a sample, but you can, you can see how that would be understood as a threat to, to the established church as it was. So on the 6th of July, 1415, Jan Hus was burned at the stake um, at the Council of Constance after a trial which he found unsatisfactory. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it's for this reason, if you go, again, if you go to Prague, which I urge you to do, um, there is a there's, a there's a fine statue of Jan Hus um, with, uh, with the slogan, Pravda um, Zvitezhi, uh, the truth will triumph, the truth will be, the truth will be victorious. So, this is relevant for us because this, this precipitates a situation in which the, the Habsburgs come back. Um, 
the Czech nobility and much of the Czech bourgeoisie um, and many Czechs in general, including, including peasants, identify with Hus's version of Christianity. By the way, what was Hus's job? He, he, was, um, he was basically the dean of a university. Interesting, right? Um, so, so Hus, um, oh, and he, when he lectured, um, just, just fun detail, he lectured in Czech a lot of the time, but his notes were in Latin, right? Yeah, interesting, right? Okay, so, uh, so anyway, so Hus is killed, but many Czechs believe in his version of Christianity, and, uh, and they rebel against their own Luxembourg king, who by this time is called Sigismund, uh, Sigismund Luxembourg from Luxembourg. And he take, picks up the challenge. He says the heretics will be, will be, will be washed away. And so there's a, kind of, there's a kind of civil war in the Bohemian lands against, against the Luxembourgs, which was led by this fantastic guy who I wish I had more time for, Jan Zizka, um, who was a one-eyed military genius who invented a whole bunch of military tactics which were later used um, by other people like, um, well, Stealing all the gold from the churches is not original, but uh, he did that. Um, he he would he did things like take take it. He, he he would take wagons full of hay and make circles of them, right? So as kind of mobile mobile fortresses, and then shoot out from the inside. Clever things which people hadn't seen before. He took good advantage of firearms. Um, so this 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 war goes on for a long time, and now you see the opening. This is the opening for the Habsburgs because the Habsburgs, good Catholics volunteer to come in on the side of the Luxembourgs. And as the Habsburgs tend to do, um, they manage to get, they manage to connect it with marriage. They always manage to, this is like, this is their secret. Um, uh, there's a Hungarian king who I'm gonna mention later called Matthias um, Corvinus who wrote, of course, in Latin, let others fight wars, uh, thou happy Austria marry. Like that slogan, which is sort of beautiful and concise, gives you a sense of how they went, got on for those, for those 600 years of power. So the, the Habsburgs come in on the side of the Luxembourgs in this war. They don't actually help very much on the battlefield, but, um, but the, 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 the leader of the Habsburg family, the head of the Habsburg family at the time, um, who, is, who is Albert V, gets himself the daughter of the Luxembourg ruler, whose name is Elizabeth, um, Gets, gets her promised as his bride. And, uh, and, and, and they marry in 1422, which means that Albert von Habsburg is going to become the successor, which he does. He becomes Holy Roman Emperor in 1437. And then the Habsburgs are going to be Holy Roman Emperors for the next three centuries after that, right? So Black Death, religious confusion, religious rebellion, the Habsburgs sneak in at the last moment, marry the right person, and suddenly they're Holy Roman Emperors again for the next three centuries. And as Holy Roman Emperors, what do they do? Um, they, they promulgate this privilegium maius, right? They just, they just issue it. They say, this is true, this is official, this is, this is law, right? We have a special right to rule. Okay, so, the, um, so I mentioned Corvinus. He's the one, he's, he mounts the next challenge to the Habsburgs. He's the, great, he's the greatest of the Hungarian kings, Matthias Corvinus. Um, he actually drives the Habsburgs from their own Austrian lands for a while and you know, does the sort of classy thing of taking up residence in Vienna. So he, he lives in Vienna um, from, from 1484. But he's die, he dies in 1490 and he's succeeded by Władysław Jagiełło, who is of course from that Lithuanian family, which is now ruling Poland. Um, he becomes king of Hungary. Now, he, so, so interestingly, Corvinus says, thou happy Austria Mary, uh, but it's the, the happiest marriages actually come after Corvinus dies. 
There are two unbelievably fortunate marriages now for the Habsburgs, which, which, which consolidate their place in Europe and in the world. The first has to do um, with, uh, with Władysław Jagiełło. Władysław Jagiełło enters, um, enters into a marriage pact with the head of the Habsburg family, who at that time is Maximilian I. Then, unhappily for him, but happily for the Habsburgs, he dies fighting the Ottomans in 1526 at the Battle of Mohach in a stream under his horse. Um, and, uh, and, and that death triggers a marriage pact, which means that the Habsburgs then get to claim Hungary as well as the Czech lands, which they do, they claim those lands. The Ottomans actually rule most of Hungary for the next 150 years um, until 1699, right? But the Habsburgs then claim those lands and they will eventually effectively rule them. Then there's an even, there's an even more extraordinary marriage pact, which is that Maximilian I's son marries a daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. The Ferdinand and Isabella, the ones who united Spain, that Ferdinand and Isabella. And she's sixth in line, right, to the throne of Spain. So there's no way, she, there's no way this is going to happen. It's just not, I'm sure many of you are married to people who are sixth in line to some throne or another, right? Like that's just casual, right? Like you probably didn't even mention that in your Yale interviews. You're like, ah, oh, no, I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna talk about intramural rugby instead. Don't wanna, don't wanna brag. Um, so, note to video, they all laughed, right? You can't tell when they laugh at my jokes, they all laughed, including the ones who are married to someone who's sixth in line. So, the, um, so, uh, so but what happens? All of, the, all of the men who are ahead of her die. They all die. All five of them die, conveniently just in time for Maximilian's son to become king of Spain, thereby bringing the Spanish Empire, and shortly thereafter the Portuguese Empire, and the, Nether and the Netherlands, and all the lands controlled by the Netherlands, under the Habsburg. So two unbelievably lucky marriages. Okay, so that's who the Habsburgs are until we get to about the year 1700. The year 1700, 1699, 1700, is when they're established as a European power, but not an American, not a world power anymore, because the Spanish Habsburgs die out in 1700. 1699, Treaty of Karlovitz, they control the Balkans, as well as the Czech lands, as well as, as Hungary. They take on a distinct European shape, which they're more or less gonna have until, until, 19, until 1918, with some additions of lands from Poland, which we're gonna talk about. After 1700 and the extinction of the Spanish line, the male line of the Austrian Habsburgs is also extinguished. In 1740, there are no more men. There are no, there's no male Habsburg to take the throne. What do they do? And again, this is like another one of these moments where a, a particular person comes to power and if it had been somebody else with maybe a little bit less intelligence and determination, things would have gone differently. But what the Habsburgs did was they came up with the aptly named pragmatic sanction which meant that if there are no male Habsburgs, how about a female Habsburg? Very pragmatic, right? Pragmatic, I mean, pragmatic from their point of view. Because what's always happening to these families is that the male line dies out and then there's a war and then somebody else's male line takes over. Why not a woman? So Maria Theresia um, takes over as empress of the Habsburg lands in 1740. She's immediately challenged in a way which we would now refer to as highly gendered by, um, by, by Friedrich of Prussia, um, who, 
who, do, who says that, he says, this is how it's gendered, he says, sure, you have the right to rule, it's, that's all fine, but I think I need to decide for you which territories you get to rule. <laughs> that's, so, so, the, so the Prussians make war on the Habsburgs. Who were the Prussians? If you can just remember from a couple lectures ago, Prussia on the Baltic Sea, successor state of the Teutonic Knights, little tiny thing which the Poles allow to survive. But then when the Poles get into trouble, the Prussians become a kingdom, they start to expand, and their ruling family, the Hohenzollerns, are just gonna keep expanding, keep expanding, keep expanding, until in 1871, they're gonna unify Germany, right? So we're kind of in the middle of that story with, um, with Friedrich. So Friedrich makes war on the Habsburg monarchy um, in 1740. The Habsburg monarchy defends itself very well. They only they lose one territory, which Maria Theresia will always want back and never get, which is called, which is called Silesia. But meanwhile, and there's a lot of meanwhile um, for Maria Theresia when it comes to bearing children. Meanwhile, she does bear a son in 1741, um, beginning a new house, Habsburg-Lorraine, um, which is gonna rule until 1918. As the English wits then put it, the enemy has lost his chance for Austria now wears pants. Um, this was, this was, so when I tell you all the things that Maria Theresia has done, I want you to bear in mind that in the 19 year, in, in the next 19 years, she's going to have 15 more children, right? So 16 children in 19 years, plus the things we're talking about. And yes, she had childcare. Okay. So 1756 to 1763 is a, the next major conflict between Prussia and the Habsburgs. On the world scale, this is the Seven Years' War. This is the British and the French fighting in North America. This is the British, and this is the British gaining dominance over India. The Seven Years' War is the, it's like it's a world war. Um, it's 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 a legitimately global conflict. But for our purposes, it's one more time when the Habsburgs fight the Prussians to a draw under Maria Theresia and continue to survive. Then politics turns in 1772 with the first partition of Poland. Now, the, 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 um, the slightly unfair thing about the partition of Poland, as I'm sure all of you Polonophiles will have noticed, is that it's, it's not that long before, it's, it's 1683, when the Polish armies have come to Vienna and raised the Ottoman siege and protected Vienna, and then, be, and then helped the Austrians to begin the series of victories, which will end in 1699 with, with Karlowitz. Um, less than 100 years later, 89 years later, 1772, the Habsburgs are going to take part along with the Prussians, and along with the Russian Empire under Catherine, um, they're gonna take part in the first, partition, the first partition of Poland. And it is in this partition that the Austrians take this territory which they call Galicia, which is a beautiful example of imperial naming and renaming. If you are Ukrainian, you'll know that there's a town called Halic and that there's a region called Halicina. And from Halic, Halicina, um, there the, there's a Latin name um, from which you can make in German, Galician, which we call Galicia, right? And so they name the territories that they, that they claim in 1772, they name them Galicia, Galicia and Lodomeria. Lodomeria is even more wonderful. So there's a historical, they're historical crown lands, um, as you know in this class of Galicia, we call them Galicia and Volinia. Volinia has a town in it called Volodymyr. From that town Volodymyr, you get the Latin name Lodomeria, which let's admit it sounds kind of cool. And so from, so, so the, the Habsburgs claim that they are ruling um, Galicia, Galicia and Lodomeria. Galicia and Lodomeria. In fact, it's only, they don't actually rule Lodomeria, which is another part about imperial. Always on, err on the side of claiming more than you actually. The Habsburgs also were kings of Jerusalem. You might not have known that, but they were kings of Jerusalem, right? There's always a lot, no, I mean, this is how you rule. There's always a long list of things. And somewhere in that middle of the list 
like it kind of blurs from things that you might control to things that your uncle controlled to things that you never really controlled, right? But there's always a long list of stuff that you rule. Okay, so, um, so okay, where are we? So, so Maria Theresia, um, the partitions. So it's the first partition of Poland that brings Galicia into the Habsburg monarchy, 1772. The last thing on her mind were all of the Ukrainian speakers there, or for that matter, all of the Yiddish speakers there. Um, it, this, is, this is not this class, but just FYI, adding Galicia to the Habsburg monarchy brings in all the families who then a couple of generations later are going to create German modernity in Vienna, right? So for example, the Freud family, right? All these families are going to start in Galicia, take, take, a, take a station stop in Moravia, end up in Vienna, and then they're going to create they're going to create Art Nouveau, they're going to create German modernism, civilization basically, circa 1900. So just FYI. So the, this partition also had that meaning, right? If the Austrians don't take this territory, and let's say the Russians do, then there are not going to be, there are not going to be German-speaking Jews in Vienna in the, around the year 1900 to make Vienna the city that you're all going to visit this summer, basically, right? Okay, so, um, so, in the, so there are three partitions of Poland, 1772, 1793, 1795. And by the time the dust settles, um, Russia has taken most of it. Very roughly speaking, uh, the, the, the left bank, that is the Western part, is added to what Russia already gained a century before, which is the right bank or the Eastern part. Almost all of Ukraine is now under the Russian empire. The exception, the very, very important exception is Galicia which is now under the Habsburgs um, in this new zone. And this Galicia in the third partition is extended to include what is now basically South Central Poland. So Krakow, um, is, is, Krakow after a little while is going to be inside this Galicia. So this Galicia has Polish speakers, Yiddish speakers, um, Ukrainian speakers, and it's now a district in Austria. So the very last thing we have to do is talk about what is special in Austria in the 19th century. Skim over the first part. Um, the first part is the post-Napoleonic part when all of the European dynasties are embarrassed and then they tend to crack down afterwards. The age of Metternich, the age when Austria invents the police state, the age of systematic censorship, um, the 1820s and the 1830s. This comes to an end with the revolution of 14, 14, 1848, which is a broad European conflagration um, from Belgium through France, through, through Austria. Um, in, uh, it's the time when Karl Marx wrote this little thing called the Communist Manifesto. That was also 1848. Uh, at the end of 1848 in Austria, the most interesting thing that has happened is that a teenager, um, he's 18 at the time, I believe, uh, Franz Josef comes to power. And Franz Josef is going to be the ruler of Austria from 1848 to 1916. And he's, go he's going to be setting the political tone during all that time. From our point of view, an interesting thing that happens um, in, the, in the revolution, in the revolutions of 1848, has to do with the Poles and the Ukrainians. And it reveals an Austrian tactic, which is um, very important to nation building. So it's not the most heroic part of nation building, but it's a very important part of nation building. In 1848, the Austrians have some reason to be concerned about the Poles. Less the Ukrainians, more the Poles. The Poles have had their own state until 1795. The Poles have a nobility, they have some wealth. Some of the Poles have gotten into the Austrian bureaucracy. And so what do they do in 1848 in Galicia? Um, they encourage the Ukrainians, right? They encourage the Ukrainians. They, 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 they encourage the establishment of something called Ukrainian National Council, which then makes Ukrainian political demands. 
So rather than directly suppressing or intimidating the Poles, they say, oh, look what, look what we can do over here. Oh, there are some Ukrainians who also live there. I bet they would like some things. And so the Ukrainians issue political demands like dividing Austria in half, which is going to be, I mean, not Austria, Galicia in half into a Western and Eastern part, which will be a Ukrainian idea all the way through, all the way through 1918. And so um, this is, I mean, this is, this is going to be, this kind of idea of compromise is going to be crucial all the way to the end. And I just want to set it up for you structurally. The, U the Ukrainians were not exactly a national minority in Austria. Aust a national minority would be more like in interwar Poland, which we're going to talk about soon enough, where it really is a, a nation state for the Poles and the Ukrainians, 5 million, 6 million Ukrainian speakers, are a minority. But in the Habsburg monarchy, it's more like the Ukrainians are one group of people in Galicia and, and where they're contesting things with the Poles. And when they contest things, they have somewhere to go besides violence or besides direct confrontation, which is Vienna. They can go to Vienna. The Habsburgs are at the top. And the Habsburgs are always going to be capable down to the end of saying, okay, as a matter of fact, let's make another compromise. Let's redo this. Let's redo that. Let's redo this. Let's redo that, right? Which isn't the most exciting form of politics, I admit, right? Again, cross-reference to European Union. But it, it, it might be a form of politics, of national politics, which is more durable than people thought in the 19th century or the 20th century. So this form of politics comes alive after 1867. So the other part of... Um, the, the famous saying of Corvinus, let others fight wars, thou happy Austria marry. The slightly unkind part would be the suggestion that maybe that the Austrians are going to lose a lot of wars, which is also true, right? They, 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 they didn't exactly um, cover themselves with glory in the wars of the 19th and the early 20th century. Um, they, um, they got embarrassed in 1859, and, uh, which began the process of Italian unification. They really got embarrassed in 1866 with the Germans, which is um, the, the beginning of the story of German unification. After they lost a war to Germany, um, they, they had, the Habsburgs had to make a compromise from a position of weakness with the most important nationality within their borders, which is the Hungarians. And this is the famous Ausgleich of 1867. That's one of these words like later on Anschluss. Like you, they're like, there are five German words you have to know. And um, two of them are Ausgleich and Anschluss. Uh, I don't have time for the jokes about the other three. We're running out of time. Hopefully it's some other lecture. But anyway, Ausgleich just means compromise. Just means compromise. But in this context, it means the compromise of 1867 in which the Hungarian nobility was basically given the right to become a state within a state of the Habsburg monarchy and to do as they please with the Slovaks, um, the, the Slovaks, the Croats, the Romanians. The remainder of Austria, which is in a funny kind of C shape around Hungary, from, from Galicia, um, through Moravia, Bohemia, Austria itself, down the Adriatic course, coast, what's now Slovenia, what's now Croatia, that Austria was governed after 1867 by a kind of constitutional law, which promised things like freedom of speech, um, uh, which, uh, which, which promised um, equal rights for individuals and equal rights for nations. Never quite defined what a nation was, but equal rights for individuals, equal rights for, for nations. It's in this particular version of Austria, not the Hungarian part, the non-Hungarian part, that the story of, of, uh, of, of Ukrainian nationality plays out. And by now you will have noticed the timing, right? The timing, the timing, the timing. After 1867, many things are possible. After 1867, freedom of speech, individual freedom. Uh, after 1867, Austria is going to move until by 1907, um, there's going to be full manhood suffrage, which is pretty advanced 
for the standards of the time. Um, the United States didn't have it, for example. And, uh, so, so, and that means that along with full manhood suffrage, right, the right, the right of all males to vote, comes political parties. And with political parties come political campaigns and political demands. And with political campaigns and political demands come newspapers, right, because there's freedom of speech. And that includes, among many, many other things, Ukrainian newspapers, Ukrainian political parties, Ukrainian political demands, which even if they're not fulfilled, they're out there and they're aired. And, uh, and again, the timing. This is from 1867 to 1914. The timing is the same moment when Ukrainian culture and any kind of politics becomes impossible in the Russian Empire. That's so important to everything. Because after 1867, the leading thinkers and activists from the Russian Empire, when they are banned after 1863 and again in 1876, when they are banned by the, Valu the, the Valuev Circular and the Ems Decree from using the Ukrainian language, where do they go? They go to Galicia. They go to the Habsburg monarchy, right? And the timing is that the timing is so important here, absolutely crucial. The Habsburg monarchy is becoming a place where you can do Ukrainian politics at exactly the moment the Russian Empire is becoming a place where you can't do Ukrainian politics or, for that matter, Ukrainian culture. And because the, the center of Ukrainian intellectual, political, and cultural life was actually the Russian Empire, this means that all of these people are coming into Galicia who can do things like occupy a chair in East European history, right? There's a fellow called Mihailo Hrushevsky, the most important historian of Ukraine, um, who, who basically applies the methods of what we would call social history and writes a continuous history of Ukraine from the Middle Ages. Um, Hrushevsky leaves the Russian Empire, comes to Galicia, and lo, lo and behold, he has, he has a chair in, in, in Lviv. He has a chair, um, and, he, and he's able to teach this version of, 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 of history. Um, which may, you know, that's actually incredibly significant, right? The difference between nobody and one, and, and nobody having a chair in Ukrainian history and the most important Ukrainian chair having a chair in Ukrainian history and lecturing and publishing his books, very, very important. But that's just, that's just pars pro toto. That's just one example of, of, uh, of, many, other, of many other things. Very important thinkers like, um, like Pantelemon Kulish, like, uh, like Drahomanov, they all come from the East and they go, and they go to the West. And they, they bring radical political ideas. Um, they bring the idea, for example, a fundamental idea, which I'll just mention, and then we'll move on, that, that politics belongs to the people as such. So in the Russian Empire, the, the serfs were freed in 1861, which raises the basic question of, okay, if they're free of bondage, who, who now owns them? Who, who control, who, to whom do they belong? Are they gonna be loyal to the czar? Are they gonna be loyal to something else? And the, the main radical political reaction at the end of serfdom was something called, in the Russian Empire, was called populism, or going to the people. And the Ukrainian populists were the ones who went to the people and found out they were Ukrainian, essentially, which, is, um, which, which coincides uh, in time with the emergence of a new discipline of science, which we call anthropology but at the time was called ethnography, which we call, think of as the, the, the method of anthropology. At the time, they said ethnography for the science. Going to the people, recording their songs, recording their stories, recording their history, recording everything you can, taking the people seriously as an object of science coincides with taking the people seriously as an object of politics. And it leads to the notion that in addition to history and politics and power mattering for a nation, also, the people and its culture and its durability matter, 
right? So if there are songs, if there's a culture, if there's a language, then that means there's a nation. This is the ethnographic idea of a nation, a very powerful idea. Um, and that ethnographic idea of a nation is obviously very useful in Galicia. Not against the Russians, Russians don't matter in Galicia, but against the Poles. Because in Galicia, I mean, this is so important, it's not that the Ukrainians are a national minority struggling against the center. No, 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 no. The Ukrainians are struggling against the Poles and the Polish gentry. After 1867, the Poles, as a historical nation, as people said back then, as a gentry nation, they are also the beneficiaries of a compromise. They get control over schools, very important. They get a local parliament. They get, they get some control over local administration. And what does that give for the Ukrainians? It gives the Ukrainians something to struggle for, right? Something to struggle. And some of that they're going to claw back and get control of, especially at the level of, of, of schooling. They're going, to get, they're going to claw back and try to get control of that in the, in the, in the, in the, in the free politics that was possible of the Habsburg monarchy. But what are the intellectual or ideological weapons they're going to use? The Polish argument is that we're a nation because we always were. It's not that the Polish-speaking peasants are the nation. They didn't think that, right? The nation are the gentry. The nation are the people who used to be able to vote in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the gentry, the historical nobility. That's the nation, the historical nation, as people said. But, um, but the Ukrainians now have a different kind of argument to make. Their argument can be, well, maybe we don't have the gentry. Maybe we, didn't, you know, maybe we weren't the political class 100 years ago in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but at least in certain parts of the territories, we have the people, we have the majority, we have the culture, and that is the nation. And that's a very powerful argument, right? It's a very powerful, that, that version of the nation, by the way, is, has broad, is broadly victorious. I mean, people can disagree about you know, this and that, but you wouldn't generally say like, it, it, there are very few countries now where you can say, I belong to the nation because I belong to the nobility, right? In general, if I say nation now, you're not gonna think of some elite, you're gonna tend to think of everybody or at least some large group. Right? So the Ukrainians, with the help of the, Ukra the Ukrainians in Galicia, with the help of the Ukrainians coming for the Russian Empire, can make this argument. They can say we're the majority. And this argument also has, um, it also has political ramifications. It means if you mobilize enough people to vote, you can send your representatives to parliament, as they do. You can have debates in parliament. You can make your camp, they never win this argument, but they make it to the end. We, we should divide Galicia into east and west and have our own eastern, have our own eastern Galicia. And so with the help of these people, with the help of, with the help of these arguments, but above all, with the help of the very specific Habsburg political system, the period between 1867 and 1914 becomes the period when Ukrainian politics explodes. Ukrainian politics becomes mass politics. There are suddenly Ukrainian nationalists and Ukrainian socialists and Ukrainian liberals and Ukrainian every possible thing and Ukrainian newspapers. Um, a Ukrainian civil life, civic life in other words. And that in turn, is going to be incredibly important when we get to the moment uh, when the empires begin to break up, which is the First World War, which is where we're going to start again next time. So, thank you very much. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.